Well, um, good morning. We're so glad you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, as a kid, I, I, I did love sports. I loved to play baseball, and I played on a team, you know, from March to July, and then you'd have a month off, and then you'd play fall ball, and I loved playing baseball, and school was just an interruption to my baseball life. But what I got annoyed with was all the baseball practices I was required to attend. I just wanted to play the game because as a kid, all I remember is the coach saying the same like two things over and over again, yelling at all the kids who are picking dandelions in the outfield, right? You know, you have some kids who's yelling, hey, keep your eyes on the ball or hey, you know, Troy, get in baseball ready position. Say the same two things over and over and over again. And I just wanted to like yell back, we get it. Okay, we get it. But then, you know, what happened was that coach's voice yelling at us repeatedly actually sunk in. And I'd be up there hitting later in life. And I remember, keep your eye on the ball. It's the most foundational thing in baseball and sports. And yet it helped me be a decent hitter. Now, not a good enough hitter to actually play because I'm here with you this morning. But (laughs) I'd be sitting out there, get all distracted, you know. And then all of a sudden I remember, oh, yeah, my coach told me, get in baseball ready position, right? These foundational tips that were yelled at us repeatedly, actually matter, and eventually they sink in. Well, last week we started just a a four-week series looking at what the purpose of our church is, the purpose that we are to fulfill. And sometimes some of this is going to sound very foundational, kind of like a keep your eye on the ball, and you're like, I get it, I get it, let's move on to bigger things. But Jesus in Matthew 22 said the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. We talked about that last week. That's our purpose as a church. Chippewa Valley Bible Church exists for that. And you exist as a Christian to love God and to love people. So we're studying these foundational truths. It seems obvious, and yet we need the reminder because hopefully it will sink in in new and fresher ways. And yet there's the obvious question. How do we as a church love God and love people? Because if I gave you a pen, which by the way, in front of you says love God, love people on it, and you took notes in your bulletin, and I said, hey, I want you to think of 10 ways that you can love God and love people. We'd have hundreds or thousands of ways that we think we should best love God and love people, but we need to kind of have some direction to go. So through studying and praying, we've kind of summarized almost what the Bible expects of us as a church in three big categories, right? So if you want to love God and love people, here's three things we're going to do. We're going to worship God, we're going to belong to one another, and we're going to live out the gospel. So today we're going to be looking at a whole sermon on worshiping God. We're going to look at such a worship central passage. Um, There's not going to be a ton of like little precise application for you because our vision here is to get a bigger vision of God that's going to transcend everything. But each week over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at one of these three things. So we're going to be worshiping God so that we can fulfill the great purpose God has for us as a church to love God and love people. Now, if we're talking about worship, we could look at almost any text in the Bible that's about worship. There's hundreds of them that clearly describe what worship looks like, how to do it. Here's some songs to sing. But we're going to look at two full chapters in the book of Revelation. So please open up to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's on page 1030. Now, we, we always, as Christians, get a little bit of excitement and curiosity and fear about the book of Revelation. And there's a degree where we should. It's a little different, it's a little unique. And as we're reading this text out loud, as, as you hear my voice, you're going to have some questions that automatically come up in your mind, like, 
Why are there 24 elders on 24 thrones? And why do these creatures have all of these eyes that can look all around? And these are good questions. Some of them are going to answer, some of them are not. But eventually here, we're going to preach through the book of Revelation. But at our first reading today, in Revelation 4 and 5, I hope it becomes so abundantly clear that these two chapters are about worship. We have a lot of questions and curiosities, but these are two long chapters of, a, of, of calling us to worship. So we're going to read these two chapters all in one sitting. And I want you to note how frequently worship is described or addressed. Once you find Revelation 4 and 5, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? This is John writing. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one sitting on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whatever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. And though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the four creatures, the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we study these two chapters in your word, help us all join in and proclaim that same amen and that same worship as these elders and angels. Be worshiped among us today. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. Even just reading these two chapters makes us just, we just want to cancel all preaching plans and just work our way through Revelation. Um, there's going to be a lot of things that we can't fully develop here in this one sermon, but there's something so clear in this text that you probably didn't pick up on it because it's so obvious, um, but it's the repetition of the word throne. It's referenced here 17 times in two chapters. 17 times we're told about the throne of heaven. Now, what does a throne represent? It represents authority. It represents someone who's sovereignly ruling and reigning. And this throne represents the Lord, our God. These two chapters, time and time again, in different scenes, different characters, different features, are proclaiming one simple thing, that God is sovereignly ruling and we deserve, He deserves our worship. And he's not on this throne just aimlessly serving and ruling. He's not just falling asleep here at the wheel. No, he is the sovereign Lord in control of all things. He created all things. All things continue to breathe and exist and work because he is sovereign. He is over all things, before all things, in all things, outlasting all things. This is the sovereign Lord and the word throne represents that. And if you are using a printed Bible... In chapter 4 and chapter 5, you probably see there's five little songs, little indentions in your text. You see where the font changes a little bit? Those are five songs that are sung in heaven. And this teaches us that the proper response to the throne, the presence, the authority of God is worship. Five times in two chapters, they break out into song. The throne is where God is in all of his glory and his wisdom and his strength, his beauty. And so the only right response to seeing this God on that throne is to worship him. Now, our struggle, again, as I said this earlier, is that we are a more literal, we're a Western people. So we're looking at this and we're taking this at face value, which for the most part is fine, except there's a lot of imagery and symbolism here. The Lord sitting on the throne is God the Father. Now, God the Father is not physically, literally sitting on a throne because the Bible tells us God is a spirit, right? The one uh, person of the Trinity who becomes man is Jesus. And we see in chapter five, he's not on the throne. He's standing next to it and he has an appearance of a lamb. So when we see the word throne here, yes, we're to picture the word throne in our mind, but it's not literally a picture that we need to expect when we get to heaven. God the Father is a spirit. But each image in here, 
Each symbol is to, is to uh, promote some type of truth. So when we see the throne of God here, we need to see God in his sovereignty, in his leadership, in his authority, and not be lost in all the little details that you and I can't figure out because it's a mystery. We can kind of get bogged down in the questions and miss the main point, right? Um, this reminds me of a taco place in Nashville, obviously. Um, <laughs> if I took you there and we were walk outside, we're about to walk in, you'd probably be like, hey, I don't think we should go in here. Um, I really want to see the health code test scores and stuff before we go in here. But I want to tell you, hey, look past the exterior, look past the mysterious outside of this taco place, and you might get some of the best tacos you've ever had. When you study Revelation, sometimes you have to not get bogged down in what at first appears weird and confusing, because that might distract you from seeing the main point, right? So don't miss out on the content. The, the object here is the throne and the Lord here. Don't miss that, right? Don't miss out on the tacos because you're confused. So though God is not a physical being here, he can't sit on a throne. The picture is there is God over all things, ruling and reigning, and the only response is worship. So here's the main point of chapter 4 and chapter 5. The sovereign Lord is worthy of every ounce of worship from all people and all creatures in all places. This is the main point of the, of the two chapters. The sovereign Lord there on the throne, worthy of every ounce of worship from all people and all creatures in all places. Each character in this heavenly scene worships God. Every object mentioned, every object mentioned even with nature is mentioned here to express worship to God. Angels, lightning bolts, rainbows, animals, all characters, all objects are here to highlight the greatness of God. And these two chapters have heavenly descriptions that are then interrupted with heavenly songs, and they flip-flop between the two. Five and six each have an, their own reason for why God deserves worship. Chapter five focuses on the fact that God is sovereign and ruling over all creation. Chapter six is God is deserving of worship because he's sovereign over all salvation. So it's kind of like two chapters with two reasons why you should worship God. So we're going to look at each chapter briefly. First point in chapter four, the sovereign Lord is worthy of worship for he is sovereign over all creation. Creation is kind of the theme here. And in verse one of chapter four, John, the apostle is given a vision by God. And the, and the scene here involves John seeing God and the appearance of God are stones like Jasper and Carnelian. And around uh, this appearance of God, the, the stones, there's a, a rainbow that appears around the throne. In verse 5 and 6, we have flashes of lightning, we have rumblings of thunder, there's these torches of fire before the throne, and somewhere right around the throne is something that appears like a sea of glass. Colors, stones, a rainbow, lightning, thunder, a sea. Each one of these features um, is to communicate a truth to us. So just briefly, the, the colors and the stones represent the radiance, the glory, the beauty of God. You ever thought about that? God made a world full of color? The rainbow here reminds us of the story of Noah and the mercy of God. The lightning and thunder reveal the power and the force of God. The fire, those little spirits represent God's presence. And then there's that sea that looks like glass, right? Throughout the Bible, 
The sea is often a negative picture of chaos. And yet, who's the one who can make a sea be so still it looks like glass? It's God. So in the midst of all these little features that often confuse us, there's rainbow, there's lightning, there's a sea like glass. What this is to show us is that in this heavenly scene, even the details of color and stones and nature are there for one purpose, to glorify and magnify God. When John saw a rainbow, he didn't say, oh, that's a nice looking rainbow. He said, look at the mercy of God. When he sees these stones and colors, he says, look at the beauty of God. When he hears uh, the thunder and sees the lightning, he kind of steps back in fear because God is so powerful. Even the acts of nature, even the invention of color is to show the glory of God. So every lightning bolt you and I see should trigger the power of God in our mind. When we see a color that stands out to us, that should reveal God is beautiful and deserves our worship. Every lightning bolt, every color is there for us to go to worship. But it moves beyond colors and nature and rainbows and things. In verse 4, John sees 24 elders on 24 thrones. And then there are four living creatures in verse 6. And these four living creatures had eyes front and behind. One looked like a lion, one looked like an ox, one looked like a face of a man, and one looked like an eagle. And both the 24 elders and both the four living creatures sing out praises to God, right? In verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 8, it's holy, holy, holy. In verse 11, it's worthy are you. These 24 elders are, are some type of angels. There's a little mystery here. But these 24 angels represent Christians. Number 24 is often symbolic about worship in the Bible. Uh, David had 24 worship leaders in 1 Chronicles. Okay, there were 24 priests of David. But also the number 24, I, I believe, is symbolic here. You have 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You have 12 disciples in the New Testament. Um, if my Last time I took a math class was in high school. But if you combine that, it's 24. And it represents from the beginning to the end of all redemption time, Christians, people who call God their God. These 24 elders represent the totality of Old Testament and New Testament Christians. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. So we have creation and nature worshiping God. We have Christians worshiping God. But then you have these four living creatures, ox, a man, an eagle, a lion. They have these weird appearances what this represents is all creatures who've ever breathed, from an ant to a human, from a cow to a lion. Every single creature who's ever lived exists to worship God. It's not just nature that proclaims the handiwork of God, which does. It's not just Christians who set aside their Sunday to worship God, but every creature from animals to humans were created to ascribe worth and greatness to God. So chapter 4 gives the picture of heaven of what every creature and even every created thing like colors and lightning are going to do for all of eternity. They're going to worship God. Everything that's created by God exists to worship God. So these two songs that are sung in chapter 4, right? The first one proclaims the holiness of God. It's a beautiful creation, right? You guys have seen some creation in your life that just stands out. How could anything be more beautiful than that? Well, that creation itself is proclaiming holy, holy, holy to God, as in you are perfect, 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 as in no one is like you. 
God. In verse 11, there's these elders who have some type of power, authority, right? You and I as Christians have so much power and authority and spiritual blessings in Christ. And yet when we get to heaven, what are we going to do? We're going to take off everything that we could add up in pride and put it down and say, no, only you, God, are worthy. This worship is going on now in heaven and it's going to be forever. And one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to renew the heavens and the earth, make his new habitat here where every sickness and death and sin is gone. And every ounce of this world is going to purely and rightly worship him without distraction or limitation. So every color to every animal, to every person who's in the new heavens and new earth, they're going to be singing songs just like this. And right now, Romans 8 tells us creation right now is groaning for this day. And we're here this morning, and we're not in this scene yet, are we? And yet we kind of are. When we sing together this morning, and we sang some of these lyrics, by the way, you and I are joining in on the choir that's going on in heaven. When we choose to worship God, we live out our heavenly, eternal identity. You and I have breath in our lungs to worship God. The color of each sunset every day, the taste of your lunch, the rumbling of thunder, even the white landscape of snow, the laughter of a child, the stars in the sky, even the mooing of a cow exist to worship God. So when we come and we gather to sing, for example... We are joining in on one of the most heavenly identities we can have, to be worshipers. Verse 11 says, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God made every single thing. Every single thing continues to work and function and breathe because of God, and all of it exists for God. This screams his sovereignty, his lordship, his authority. So even if a person absolutely rejects God on earth, they are still being ruled sovereignly by God. And one day, as Philippians tells us, every creature will bow down before God. Friends, this passage is about showing that everything we see and even the things that we don't see, the things that we don't pick up, pick up on, exist to worship God. God made things for himself, for his glory. So we are here to ascribe his worth. So the big idea here for us is to join in on these songs every day. When you see a color that stands out, Think of the beauty of God. When you taste something great, thank God that he's a giver of good things. When you hear thunder, think about how powerful and strong he is. Think of this God who's over all things. But also, I mean, even, even how Matt was praying this morning, there's a lot of suffering and trials and anxieties and sorrows. And I think what's encouraging from chapter four here is that first of all, those things are eventually going to be done. But also in the midst of them, God created all things. He sustains all things. All things are for him. So we do not need to panic. He's sovereign over every lightning bolt, every medical diagnosis, over every hue of color. And every single one of them is going to bow down before God. So no matter your obstacle or your trial or your hardship in life, it's going to have to bow down before the Lord and submit. He is sovereign over every single thing. So he is worthy of worship. 
then we move to chapter 5. And we get one more reason why we should bow down and worship. And it's this, is that the sovereign Lord is worthy of worship, for he is sovereign over all redemption. Redemption. The chapter remains in heaven, but something else grabs the attention of this scene. In the hand of God is a scroll or a book that's tightly secured with seven seals. And it's so secured that an angel in verse 2 says, Who is here who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can break the seals? So the scene of worship and joy and singing all of a sudden changes to gloom and despair. For John begins to weep and cry because no one there is strong enough or worthy enough to open this strongly sealed scroll. So he cries. He's in despair. Right? So can you get that new pickle jar at the grocery store? All your might, you're wondering, I can't open it. Who here is worthy to open the pickle jar, right? But the scroll is no pickle jar. The scroll represents salvation and judgment. If you continue to read, you get in the chapter 6 of Revelation. The scroll and the seals come back up. And what these represent are the judgment of God. Each seal is like a plague of God's wrath on those who refuse to bow down to Jesus. So you're going to realize that you don't want this scroll to open and, you re- and get the seals revealed upon you because it's God's wrath. So John is weeping because there's no one who's going to be able to open up these seals, open up the scroll, and defeat it and conquer it. Because John's now is realizing, oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm a sinner. I'm going to endure the wrath of God. He's going to put his seals, his plagues upon me. He's feeling hopeless. So he's weeping. But then in verse 5, one of the angels says, no, John, don't, don't weep anymore. The Lion of Judah has already conquered the scroll and the seals. Who's this Lion of Judah and what's this conquering? The angels proclaiming that only the Lion can open the scroll and conquer the plagues of wrath. He alone can be the rescuer and deliverer of these people so that they don't face the anger of God for sin. He can be the one, right, who comes in and relieves the household by opening the pickle jar, right? This is Jesus who's coming in and says, I can conquer. So John stops crying, and he looks up to find the lion. But what does he see? A lamb. He was expecting to see this aggressive and violent and strong lion, but he sees a lamb, and it says a lamb who's alive, but it appears like he has been slain. As if he's been sacrificed. So he's bloody and has marks on him. This lion of Judah from the root of Jesse looks like a slain lamb. And his name is Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus who has sacrificed for our sins that you and I don't have to endure the scroll and its seals and judgments. He took our sins. He was slaughtered like a lamb. But he's alive, standing up, and this Jesus, this lamb can come and grab the scroll of judgment and have no effect on us because God has conquered death and sin. A lion is a conquering animal. And this lion doesn't conquer by war or aggression. He conquers by sacrifice, right? This lion is a lamb, and the lion's roar that scares away judgment is a cross. And thus the angels in heaven sing out songs saying, How worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
by his blood, we are ransomed. The penalty for our sins has been paid. He has been our substitute, our sacrifice, and he has ransomed the people of God. And the people of God are not just a select few people. No, it's the people of God from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Not only is God sovereign over colors and lightning bolts, but he's sovereign over the whole world and is gathering a people for himself who look all different and yet are saved by the same lamb. So when we get to heaven, If you've bowed your knee to King Jesus, you get to heaven, you're going to look around at the choir in heaven and you're going to realize how diverse it is. People from the jungles of Brazil to the cities of Russia to the desert in Egypt to the farms of Wisconsin. People are going to be singing out to the same God who saved them in the same way, the sacrifice of the lamb, the resurrection of the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You and I are part of that ransomed people. We were plagued with sin, headed towards hell, going to endure the seals and the wrath and the plagues of God. But now by this slain lamb, we are the people of God. So we are going to join in and sing, worthy are you, the lamb who was slain. God is even sovereign over salvation, right? We brought nothing to the table except our sin. And God in his authority, in his sovereignty, in his lordship, did every single thing. He made us. He made us knowing our sin. He sent his son Jesus to pursue us. He called us to salvation. His son died. His son resurrected. We did nothing. And yet Lord is sovereign in his authority on the throne, saving us. We are redeemed and saved by him and him alone. That's why he should be worshiped. He's worshiped over all creation. He should be worshiped for our salvation and redemption. And you and I have one very, very simple role here from this text. Our role is to do what verse 14 says. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. These four living creatures represent all creatures from all time, which includes you and I. And will we join in and say, Amen? Amen is a shorthand way to say, Let it be so. Amen is a shorthand way to say, Yes, I agree. I want that. Will you say amen to these two chapters? Do you agree that God is worth all glory and power and might and beauty? Will you fall down and take off our crowns of achievements and our pride and our resume and our ways and put it down at the feet of God and say, you alone are supreme and worthy? So this passage tells us what we were created for, what we should be doing now, and what we're we'll doing for all of eternity, worshiping God. This is what's going on in heaven right now, and this is what we are doing right now. That's why sometimes we describe our, our church as, you know, an outpost or an embassy of God's kingdom. We're not in heaven right now, but it's like we're in an embassy in a foreign country, and we're considered heavenly citizens. So when we come and we gather and we sing and we pray and we hear the word of God and we we had a baptism in first service, we take the Lord's Supper, we are acting as if we are in heaven and we're living out our heavenly identity when we worship. So friends, we are right here, right now. 
in our Sunday morning gatherings, in our Bible studies, in our small groups, our kids' ministries, all that stuff. We are here for the sole purpose to worship God and ascribe greatness to Him. We want to keep having a bigger and more glorious and beautiful vision of God because we live in a world that doesn't find God beautiful. We have many, even Christians maybe in our lives that don't view God how they should. We want Chippewa Valley Bible Church to be a place where God is so big and glorious and beautiful. We're about loving God and loving people. And one of the ways that we love God is by worshiping Him. When we see Him for who He is and pray to Him and adore Him and sing to Him, we love Him well. He created us to worship Him. So when we live out what we are created for, we, in fact, love Him. So how do we, as a church, worship God in order to love God? Well, obviously, the big practical way that we see this with our own eyes is we, we set aside a day, a Sunday, to come and gather with the sole purpose of worship. So we, we sing out songs, not just randomly, but we sing out songs because it's biblical. We sing out songs to love God like these angels. Whenever we pray, what we're doing is we're recognizing that God alone is on the throne and is Lord, and we are not. Right? When we hear the word of God preached, we're, we're taking orders from the king, from God on the throne, and saying, whatever you want, Amen. Right? That's why we sing songs, not about us. We don't sing songs about self-esteem. We sing songs about God. We have prayer every Sunday morning. We have prayer on Sunday nights once a month. Why? Because we're coming to the Lord of the throne saying, you have all the resources. You have all the wealth and the power and the glory. We bow down to you. The way we preach is not about what we want to hear. It's about what does the Lord have for us? What we do on a Sunday morning in our gathering is worship. But it's also why we have everything else here. For example, we have Bible studies that meet throughout the week. It's not because we're bored and we need things to do. No, we come, we open up the Bible to get more knowledge of God because what goes into our mind seeps into our hearts, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Eventually, that's going to make it into your habits. The more that we see God, the more that the knowledge of God, the study of God, theology comes into our lives, the more it produces what we call doxology, which is worship. Theology leads to doxology. So we have studies and we have mentoring programs. You can figure all this out in the um, counter out there. I'll try to remember sending an email tomorrow with all the opportunities we have to grow in knowledge to produce worship. But you being here on a Sunday morning or you coming on a Tuesday morning or going to that mentoring program requires you to give up your time or your sleep or your resources or your energy for the sake of I'm going to worship God. We have ministries and gatherings and prayer meetings all because we are here to lift high the name of God, to increase our love for God. But overall, the application for you and for me requires a bit of intentionality to have a worshipful posture, which might look like not showing up barely in time with our head and our heart in a different zip code, right? It's us walking in maybe to a Sunday morning gathering like this and thinking, I am here to join in on the heavenly choirs and worship the sovereign Lord. I'm not here to do church. I'm here to worship yeah, come in and laugh and joke and smile. This is going to be such a serious place and dark place where we're scared to walk around. 
But when it comes to singing or praying or preaching, are we thinking this is about worship? So this involves our internal attitude, what we call our posture. One day, we're going to be bowing our knee before the king in heaven, and are we going to do it now? It's not about what we want to hear, our preferences. It's about what the word of God says, what God's glory says. So this might look like you praying on Saturday night before you go to bed and thinking, how can I come ready to worship on Sunday morning? Maybe it's you on Friday or Saturday when you get the email from church about what the text is on Sunday. You read that and get in the word before the sermon. Maybe it's you walking in attentive thinking, Lord, this is about you. Little reminders and nudges that you walk in with the proper goal of this is to behold God and worship God. That's why we are here. So do it every day. Be in your word. Be in prayer. Sing songs to God. When you see colors that stand out to you, when you taste lunch today and it tastes good, when you endure suffering, whatever it is, look for God and his glory. But also, we don't exist just to worship God internally and be alone and say, I'm, I'm good with God. No, we also exist to love people. And this might seem counterintuitive, but by worshiping God, that actually frees us to love other people well. How does loving God, but you know, by singing or hearing a sermon, help us love others well? Well, worship, worshiping God kills our selfishness and pride. And what keeps us from one another is selfishness and being blinded by pride. When I worship God in his word and in singing and just being intentional, when I make my life about him, that means that life is not about me anymore. So I become more free to serve others. I'm not so consumed about my time or my energy or my sleep or this or my money, my resources. No, I'm no more blinded by pride because guess what? I'm going to be laying all that down at the feet of God anyway. The more we worship God, the more we realize that our time and our resources, the things that God has given us are not for us to hoard, but we actually can glorify God by using them for his kingdom. We are most like God when we give up ourselves for other people because God gave up his son for us to save us. So when we say it's not about me, it's about God and his people, then we can give and we can serve and we can love and adore and we can stay in that conversation. Though I'm late for lunch, we can stay there and say this is about loving God and loving people and worship informs both of those things. It reorients us. It shows us what matters most. And you know who doesn't matter most? Me. And one day we're going to worship in heaven with people from all tribes and tongues and nations, people who are not like us, and we're going to love them. So we can start that now. So we pray that CVBC will be a place that loves God and loves people. And the first way we fulfill that is by worshiping him. This is a place of worship. So I pray as you worship God every day of your life, as you read your Bible, as you pray, as you submit to him, but as you come here next Sunday or to your Bible study this week, come knowing that you are here to behold God and expect to meet him here. As you draw near to God, God draws near to you. So if that's what you want, if you want to be a people who worship, welcome to Chippewa Valley Bible Church. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. To him 
who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And our proper response to that here at Chippewa Valley Bible Church is amen. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in our world. The things that you have created, the people you've given to us, but chiefly your son, Jesus. Help us see him with such a new, refreshing eyesight as we behold him. God, you are so glorious, so powerful, so holy. There is none like you. Let us be overwhelmed with that and bow down and worship like these angels. Receive our offering of praise as we sing. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.